You can go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be reading the first six verses of Matthew chapter 7. And as you're turning there, I've got a couple of illustrations this morning I'm going to draw your attention to. This is a trophy. See this little tiny trophy here? This is my son's trophy, all right, from a long time ago. And this is Emma Cates, all right, so I brought hers too. Um, these are their soccer trophies. It says Team Fusion Under 6 Noah Doyle 2003-2004 season, okay? And this one was Emma Kate, and um, I can't remember what year it was. But the thing is, and, and I'm sure they don't mind me telling you this, neither Noah nor Emma Kate liked playing soccer very much when they played at this age. I know I like soccer now and enjoys playing it and watching it now, but when they were, when he was under six, he did not enjoy playing soccer at all. I mean, he went out there with the rest of the team, but he just stood still. He just stood there. And the whole team, you know, under six soccer, it's herd ball, right? They're all running around in a herd and trying to kick the ball. And the only person not in the herd was Noah. And then Sure enough, when Emma Kate played soccer, same thing. The herd's there, and they're just standing there, you know, watching. And the ball would come to their feet if it ever came, and it would stop right there. And then they just stare at the ball, and then the herd would come. And next thing you know, I was hoping they didn't get hurt when the herd came. The dust would clear, and there'd Noah still be standing there looking around, all right? And same thing with Emma Kate. They, they weren't particularly good at soccer at this age, and, and didn't particularly enjoy it very much. But what's interesting is, at the end of the season, they got a trophy, And Noah's team, Team Fusion, was really bad. I mean, they were really, really bad. And Emma Kate's team, I can't remember the name of your team. What was the name of your team? We don't know. See, that's how important it was to her. Okay, it it was bad too. But at the end of the season, every team and every player got the exact same trophy. Everybody. Everybody got the little foot with the little soccer ball, the severed foot with the soccer ball here. And uh, with their name on it, and in McKay's Soccer League, everyone got the gold medal, all right? Everyone got the trophy. And, of course, my kids were thrilled, you know, and they were um, excited about their trophies. But that whole mentality just bugs me a little bit, all right, of this everybody gets a trophy thing. Now, if, if you don't agree with me, that's fine. We'll talk later. But this whole everybody gets a trophy thing, to me, is the product of a culture that now is, has idolized something called fairness and is so scared of actually declaring that someone's a winner that we might judge the person who's the loser that we just give everybody a trophy. We just got to be fair, quote-unquote fair, to everybody. I read a story this week. This is no joke. There was a school. I can't remember where. I'm guessing it's a blue state, all right? There was a school that decided that they couldn't give honor, they couldn't put some kids on the honor roll and not put other kids on the honor roll. So they decided we're going to put everybody on the honor roll. The entire school or class, whatever, was going to be on the honor roll. So at the end of the year when there was a ceremony to honor honor roll students, which was everybody, then they had a problem deciding how they were going to actually bring the kids up to give them the honors because at first they were going to do it in alphabetical order But then they were afraid that that wasn't fair because some kids were going to go up before other kids. Then they said, well, let's just do it boy-girl. But they couldn't decide if the girls should go first or the boys should go first because it would be unfair to the other sex if one group went before. Now, I don't even know. I read the article. They didn't even say how they resolved this thing. It was just insane to me that that's the culture we live in today where everybody's on the honor roll. And then we can't even figure out that we can call people up alphabetically without offending somebody. Because we're so scared of offending somebody, this whole fairness idols that we serve in our culture have to be served at all costs. We don't want anybody to feel like they're disenfranchised in any sort of way. And part of the product of that culture that we live in today is that this first verse of Matthew chapter 7 has now become the world's favorite verse, right? Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. That is now the most popular verse in our culture today, now exceeding John 3.16, I'm sure. Though these words are often quoted, they are rarely quoted correctly. 
Though they are often cited, they are rarely understood. But in our secular culture, it's not, our secular culture isn't the only place that Matthew 7.1 is misunderstood. Many quote Matthew 7.1 in the church in order to brush back anyone who may be critical of how they're doing church or what doctrine the church believes. In America today, we are told that the church can, we can do anything our own way. We are told we can do whatever we want to so long as it works. I literally, another story I read this week, a church, I, I'm ashamed to say I think this was in Arkansas, that was giving away AR-15s to the men on Sunday, Easter Sunday, to try to get the men into the church, giving assault rifles away. How about that? That was a red state, by the way, all right? Giving away assault rifles on Sunday morning to try to get people into, into church. Now, some of you might be out there thinking, that would work. But that's the problem. If you begin to criticize any kind of methods like that, people say, ah, Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Don't judge the way we're doing church. And, of course, often people don't want you to push any kind of doctrine. They say doctrine divides, love unites. And it seems the moment you begin to exercise discernment or begin to question the practices that people might be employing in the church, you're labeled judgmental and you're told, again, Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. So the question we come into this text with today is this. Is Jesus prohibiting all forms of judging in this text? Are we to have no opinions about right or wrong? Are we in the name of love and tolerance to simply overlook all sin? Are we to have no opinions on on morality, make no moral judgments at all? Are we to have no opinions on the way church should function? Well, let's read the text this morning. Let's let it speak for itself. So please stand, if you would, as we read Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of the reading of God's Word because we believe it is the infallible, inerrant, inspired, breathed-out Word of God. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged... For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, I pray that we would approach it properly and rightly. Lord, I pray that what is said here this morning would be accurate Father, we do believe it is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, and we do not want to misrepresent it in any sort of way. So, Lord, keep us from reading into the text what we want to see there, or keep us from taking from the text something that's not there. Give us ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. As we come to chapter 7 of Matthew, we are wading through the last segments of the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, We are in the Sermon on the Mount as part of our series that's taking us chronologically through the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. And this series is called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. As we come to this chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, I'll remind us that this sermon, and this is important for us to remember, this sermon is given by Jesus, King Jesus, to kingdom citizens about kingdom living. In other words, he's speaking to believers, he's speaking to Christians. And Jesus expects his kingdom people to be distinct from the world. We've seen that throughout the sermon. He expects his kingdom citizens to be different, to be distinct from the world. We're to have different traits than the world. We're to have a different type of righteousness than the world. We are to seek a different treasure than the world seeks, as we looked at the last couple of weeks. And there's supposed to be a marked difference in our relationships. Our relationships in the kingdom should be different than those out in the world. And that's important to understand that context of where we have this verse that tells us to judge not. 
It's in the context of Jesus now entering a segment of the Sermon on the Mount where he's going to talk to us about how we relate to one another. So it's very important when we come to a verse like Matthew 7 that we do not strip it from its context. We have to ask ourselves, what did Jesus mean? Not what do I want it to mean or what I think it means, but what did our Lord mean to mean? What does he mean? What is Jesus saying when he tells us to judge not? Now, I've already mentioned in the introductory portion of the sermon today that the prevailing thought concerning this verse in the public discourse today is that this tells us we can't have any sort of moral opinions, definitely not negative moral opinions about anything or anyone. I read this um, week that there was a summit on world religions um, many years ago, and a religious leader stood up during that summit on world religions, and this is what this religious leader said. He said, we accept all religions to be true, and it is a sin to call a man a sinner. Did you catch that last one? It is a sin to call a man a sinner. Now that's the climate of our culture today in a nutshell. If we make any moral judgment at all, we're sinning. Of course, that logic is pretty self-defeating, isn't it? By telling us we're sinning, by calling people sinners, he is therefore calling us a sinner, and therefore he's sinning, and it just goes in circles and circles and circles, right? People say, do not call me a sinner. How dare you say that I'm a sinner? People say that you are wrong to tell me that I'm, what I'm doing is morally wrong. And that, like I said, this logic is so obviously self-defeating. To tell me it's wrong to tell you, to tell, to tell me it's wrong to tell you what you're doing is morally wrong is you making a moral judgment about me. So is Jesus saying in this text that we are not to make any sort of moral judgments about people or things or society or anything else? Is he saying that we, can, we can't have any moral opinions? Well, no. Matter of fact, we'll see clearly even in this text where we are told to judge not that we are also supposed to make sound moral judgments. Matter of fact, there's some places in the New Testament, and we'll get to some of those this morning, that tell us to judge, that we are supposed to judge. So that brings me to the first point for the sermon this morning. And the first thing we have to do when we come to this text is that we must see the difference between moral judgments and judgmentalism. We must see the difference between moral judgments and judgmentalism. Verse 1 says, judge not. Now the first thing for us to do this morning is to consider this word judge. This word that he uses in the Greek is the Greek word krino or krino. And it is a word which has a wide semantic range, or to put it another way, it has a wide, wide range of application. The word itself means um, to separate or to make a distinction between two things. So it's kind of like this. I have five apples, and I notice that one of the apples is bad, and I separate it from the other apples. I'm judging that apple by separating it from the bunch. The word is used in the New Testament in a variety of different settings with a variety of different applications. If you just do a quick word study on this in the New Testament, you can find that the word judge can mean to discern. It can mean to decide between two opinions. It can mean to carefully consider something. It can mean to resolve to do something. It's used in legal context to litigate, to govern. Um, It's used to refer to condemning something. And it's also used in reference to unfair judgmentalism. So how do we know what Jesus means here? Well, the context is always key. I contend that Jesus is using the word judge here to prohibit a censorious, hypocritical type of judgmentalism. Moral judgment, on the other hand, must be part of our life as believers. We are called to be holy as our Father is holy, and thus we are called to discern between what is right and what is wrong. And we are even called to make moral judgments when dealing with other people, specifically with believers which we'll talk about a little bit later. But judgmentalism, on the other hand, has no place in the life of a believer. Judgmentalism is the fruit of a critical spirit that results from a prideful sense of moral superiority. The the Puritans called, and I mentioned this earlier, censorious spirit. A spirit that's critical, condemning, fault-finding, harsh, and merciless. And judgmentalism is dangerous. But moral judgment is necessary for God's people and God's church. 
Judgmentalism, on the other hand, can be devastating to God's people and God's church. And sometimes it's hard to discern between the two. When are we merely exercising good moral judgment, and when are we crossing over into judgmentalism? The key is the attitude of our heart and the aim of what we're doing. Are we in the spirit acting Christ-like, or are we merely out of carnal pride acting like other men? Are we aiming for the glory of God, or are we aiming for our own glory? One springs from our sinful joy in seeing the faults of others, and it's driven by pride. But the other springs from a holy discontent when we see faults in our brothers, and is driven by love. So it's judgmentalism and moral judgment. They're two different things. And the scriptures make it clear that we are to avoid the first and we are to seek the second. John Calvin says on this text here, commenting on this text, says that these words of Christ do not contain an absolute prohibition from judging, but are intended to cure a disease which appears to be natural to us all. We see how all fault flatter themselves, and every man passes a some severe censure on others. This vice is attended by some strange enjoyment, for there is hardly any person who is not tickled with the desire of inquiring into other person's faults. All acknowledge indeed that it is an intolerable evil that those who overlook their own vices are so inveterate against their brethren. So Calvin speaks here of it being that we're, we're tickled with desire to see faults in others. I mean, I felt it this week, right? I, I got a, in the, in the mail, the mail comes in, and I, I see a, a, a little piece of mail there. And um, it's clearly something from the bank. And what it looks like is one of those little bank cards that tells you that you've either overdrawn or something like that. At first, I start freaking out oh, because it says Bank of America and everything. And then I realize it's my neighbor's. It's got his address on it. And every bit of me wanted to say, Oh, I just accidentally opened this up because I want to see how in trouble you are, you know. There's something about us that wants to know they're worse than I am. That's that sinful nature in us. We want to know the dirt on everybody else. And that, my friends, is judgmentalism. The whole scriptures testify to to the fact that what Jesus forbids here is not practicing good. He's not forbidding us to practice good discernment and to exercise sound moral judgment. We, we have to do that. We have to make moral judgments. He's prohibiting us from having a judgmentalism that, that, that is built on our pride and our desire to flatter ourselves. We know that Jesus wants us to make moral judgments. We see it here. Verse 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. Jesus is calling certain people dogs and pigs. It doesn't get much more harsh than that. At least it doesn't sound much more harsh than that, does it? And Jesus is calling us to make the same proper moral judgments about these people. And all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we're told to make sound moral judgments. Matthew 7, 15, just a few verses later, we're going to be told to discern between false and true prophets. Jesus doesn't say when, when the wolf comes in in sheep's clothing, just, oh, don't worry about it. Don't judge him. Don't judge lest you be judged. He says, Pay attention to their fruit and see who they are. Make a moral judgment. We are told to do that. Matthew 18, we are told to lovingly confront a brother who has sinned against us. Matthew 18 doesn't say when a brother sins against you, judge not that you be not judged. And just let him let it go. Just forget about it. It's not at all what it says. Go and bring the fault to the attention of your brother. That's not judgmentalism. That's using sound discernment and moral judgment. So there is a clear difference here in the Scriptures. As I've already said, the rest of the New Testament bears that out. But even Jesus himself says in John 7, 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So there is, according to Jesus, two types of judgment. A judgment that we should avoid and a type of judgment we should practice. And likewise, we're told in 1 Corinthians 5, That we are to be judging in the church. We should be judging one another. Which brings me to the context of today's text again. Reminding you, who is Jesus talking to? He is talking to believers. And who is he talking about us judging here in verse 3? He says, why do you see the speck that is in what? Your brother's eye. We are to exercise good moral judgment in the church. 
helping each other see and deal with our sin, but we are to do so without a hypocritical, hypercritical, fault-finding spirit. Paul condemns that type of spirit as well in Romans 14. Now, you remember Romans 14 is dealing with our Christian liberties, and he says at the end of Romans 14, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So the Scriptures clearly teach two different types of judgment that's going on. We are clearly told that we are to confront one another in the church about our sin. And that is using good discernment and moral judgment. But we are not to have this judgmentalism that Paul forbids here in Romans 14 that tears people down. And we see these two types of judgment in the church and we see them all the time. One's to be avoided and one is to be exercised. One is born out of hypocrisy, but the other is born out of humility. You say, okay, well that's the church, but what about people outside the church? Obviously, we're not supposed to be hypocritically judgmental inside or outside the church. Romans 2 makes that clear. But we are... But are we not to exercise good moral judgment outside the church to discern between what's holy and what's profane and to stand on what's true? Absolutely. But know this, friends, that even when you are simply practicing good moral judgment in, the, in this world and you're not being judgmental, you're simply practicing good moral judgment and you're therefore trying to live a distinct, holy Christian life, you will be accused of being judgmental in our world. You will be. You will be. As I've said, the prevailing wind in our culture today is something like this. Who are you to say what I am doing is wrong? Have you ever heard this? It's wrong for you, but, it's, but it may not be wrong for me. Isn't it interesting that morality is a moving target in our culture? Okay, our culture is terribly inconsistent. When you hear our culture today claim or, or quote Jesus' words and say, Judge not that you be not judged, what is that usually in reference to in our culture today? It's usually in reference to sexuality, to be honest with you. That is the issue in our culture today. Usually it's some sexual sin. In our day, the alphabet soup of moral confusion has people saying, well, you can't judge any of that. But when was the last time you heard someone say, judge, judge not that you be not judged about a murderer or about a child molester? Oh, judge not that you be not judged. Or Ray Rice punching his girlfriend. Or a cop shooting an unarmed man. Our culture is very selective in its invoking of judge not that you be not judged. Ready to string up the police officer and make a quick judgment that shot the young man over in Ferguson before even the court goes goes along its course. We're quick to make judgments when we want to. But then we tell people to back off when we don't want to. That's the culture today that we live in. People make moral judgments, though, all the time. People make moral judgments, if they'll simply be honest, they make moral judgments when you go out and you you drive your car. And you decide, am I going to obey that green light and that red light or not? You are making a moral judgment. People make moral judgments when they choose where to put their money in the bank. People make moral judgments when they decide... Um, to watch sports and a call doesn't go their way, right? The referee makes the wrong call. You're making a moral judgment pretty quickly there, aren't you? People make moral judgments when they decide who can or cannot date their daughter. I'm going to judge that fella before he gets even close to my daughter. Amen. It's impossible to be free from making moral judgments. We do it every day, all the time. So Christians... We make our moral judgments by standing on this book, unashamedly. But we are called to make wise moral judgments by standing on the infallible word of God and being careful not to let our moral judgments become judgmentalism. But even if you stand on God's word, the world will call you arrogant. It will call you judgmental, even if you're not being so. So we must stand, but we must do so in such a way that the world has no legitimate ground to call us judgmental. We should should stand on God's word in such a way that the world has no legitimate ground to call us judgmental. We should 
Be like 1 Peter 3, 13 tells us to be. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Listen to this. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. If you uncompromisingly stand on God's absolute law, people will call you judgmental no matter what you do. However, we must strive to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, according to 1 Peter 2, so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we have to use great care, because it's easy to cross over into self-righteous judgmentalism, especially if you get in an argument with someone and you begin to be more concerned about your glory instead of God's glory. We shift into self-righteousness. And that's only one danger of judgmentalism. I want us to see some other dangers of judgmentalism this morning. So our second point is simply this. We must see the danger of judgmentalism. Jesus wants us to understand there's no place for judgmentalism in his people. Remember, Jesus is speaking to Christians. Essentially, with these words, Jesus is saying that judgmentalism and kingdom citizenship do not go together. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 again. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, many people try to draw a parallel between this passage I just read and Matthew seven twelve, which is the golden rule, which says this, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. But this is not talking about judging others rightly so that they won't judge us. That's not at all what this verses 1 and 2 are about. The reciprocal judgment here that Jesus mentions isn't man's judgment, but God's. That's why there's great danger in judgmentalism. The better parallel for these verses is Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, if we have a condemning, judgmental heart, we may not be saved. We may still be under condemnation ourselves. We may not be able to expect any mercy on Judgment Day. Friends, let us recall that Jesus has just warned us in chapter 6 about hypocrisy and false righteousness that merely aims to be seen by others. And later in this chapter, chapter 7, Jesus will warn his listeners that there's going to be many who claim to be disciples but will be shown to be false converts. Verse 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So in this text here, we got to remember the context. Jesus is giving us a warning. If you have a judgmental spirit, a critical, condemning spirit, you got to be careful. Because that's not consistent with kingdom citizenship. It's not consistent with what it's like to be a child of God. Judgmentalism should have no place in the people of God. James chapter 4 verse 11. And James, by the way, I know I've mentioned this. The book of James, it it parallels the Sermon on the Mount in many, many ways. James chapter 4 verse 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. Now we're speaking about brothers here. Speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? When you enter into the role that only belongs to God and you think you can peer into your neighbor's heart and, 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 and um, pronounce some sort of judgment upon them in a critical, condemning spirit, friends, you are in a dangerous place. You're taking on a role that is not yours. To enter into judgmentalism, which again is a critical, condemning, fault-finding, prideful sense of moral superiority, is to foolishly put oneself in the place of God. It is idolatry. It is deadly dangerous. Paul, in the very letter where he tells us to judge other believers, 1 Corinthians, okay, he tells us to practice moral 
judgment for the sake of the purity of the church, he also condemns, in the same letter, he condemns petty, self-serving judgmentalism that was plaguing the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Don't try to be God. So in the same, we've got to understand these two different types of judgment. In 1 Corinthians, one chapter to the next chapter, you have being told not to judge, and then we're told to judge. Because there's two different aspects of judging here. One we are to avoid, and one we are to carefully practice. Uh, F.B. Meyer once said that when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are two things we do not know. First, we do not know how hard he or she has tried not to sin. And second, we do not know the power or the forces that assailed him or her. We also do not know what we would have done in the same circumstances. In other words, in a nutshell, when you see your brother or sister sinning, you want to help them through that. But you don't want to become judgmentalist, a judgmentalist because you don't know the spiritual warfare they're going through. You don't know the battles that are in their life. Their battles may be different than your battles. And so we have to be very careful when, even when we use proper judgment in the church. To enter into judgmentalism is to show that we have no true understanding of the enormity of our own sin, nor the magnitude of God's forgiveness. It is hypocrisy. It's the opposite of humility, and it's deadly dangerous. James 5, 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We should, we should have a holy fear in us. We shouldn't be judging one another so that we won't be judged, not by others, but by God. There should be a holy fear in us. God does not condone judgmentalism. So how should we avoid such a spirit? What should we do? What's the remedy? That's my next point. We must see the remedy for judgmentalism in this text. We must see the remedy. It's found in this wonderful illustration that Jesus gives, which, by the way, I think was probably pretty humorous. To the original listeners. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? So I can imagine, just for the sake of helping us get picture like we're on that mountain. I can imagine, you know, Jesus reaching down and picking up a log. And saying, why do you see that, that speck in your brother's eye? And this, hold this thing up to his face and say, but you do not see the log in your own eye. And everyone beginning to chuckle as he used this illustration. To help us get the point. And in that point, in this whole discussion of a log and a speck, we see the remedy for judgmentalism. The remedy for judgmentalism is this. Humble self-awareness and self-examination. Humble self-awareness and self-examination. Self-awareness meaning we are aware of our own deep sinfulness. That's what I mean by self-awareness. We are aware of our own deep sinfulness and self-examination meaning we are continually searching our heart out our heart to root out lingering effects of sin so self-examination self-awareness i know how sinful i am and self-examination i know how much sin continues to linger in me now notice the text does not say notice this the text does not say that there is no speck in your brother's eye it doesn't say that Okay, uh, nor does it say that we're not to take the speck out of our brother's eye. In other words, moral judgment is assumed. In this whole discussion of specks and logs, moral judgment is assumed in the church. You're going to notice specks in brother's eyes. And you should help get specks out of brother's eyes. So moral judgment is assumed, but judgmentalism is prohibited. The key is to not allow the moral judgment to become judgmentalism. And the key to that is to be humbly self-aware and be always self-examining. The reason that judgmentalism is so incompatible with true faith is that true faith is born out of a true conviction of our own deep depravity. If we truly seen our own sin, friends, let me say this as loudly as I can. If we have truly seen our own sin, then we will be merciful. We will be patient. We will be kind. We will be gentle. For so our Father was with us when he drew us to himself. Now, speck here, it's a, it's a word that 
literally means a tiny splinter. Now, how many of y'all have had a splinter? I think everyone here has probably had a splinter. I hate splinters. Working on the treehouse this summer, oh, man, a splinter. And, of course, I'm a baby. I'm, you know, I'm going in and holding my finger. Heather thinks, what, did you saw a finger off? No, no, no. It's a splinter right there, right? I can't imagine a splinter in an eye. Ouch! A splinter in an eye. So that's what the word means here. Splinters are painful. Splinters can lead to infection. But we can only help our brother who needs help. Once we have noticed and dealt with the log, literally a beam is what the word means, in our own eye. First of all, you can't see things right if you've still got the log in your own eye. You can't see things right. Matter of fact, the log in your eye may actually be blinding you to your own failings, causing your vision to be so off that you are minimizing your own faults while exaggerating the faults of others. That's, how, that's what we naturally do. We minimize our faults and we exaggerate the faults of others. Ultimately, this is utter hypocrisy. Verse 4 here. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Hypocrisy is a sign of spiritual immaturity at best, or a lack of genuine faith at worst. 1 Peter 2, 1 says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You can only put away hypocrisy if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So if you're practicing hypocrisy, what does that say? Now, of course, all of us are going to struggle with it to a degree or another. But we should be fighting it. Second thing we should see is that if we're trying to do eye surgery, if we're trying to do eye surgery on our brother with a log protruding out of our own eye, we're going to end up hurting the other person. You're going to conk them upside the head with that log sticking out of your eye. You're going to conk them upside the head with your issues. And the scalpel of your own distorted opinion is going to end up cutting them in the wrong place. Not seeing our own sin while noticing the sins of others produces a a legalistic bent in us that, according to Paul, leads to spiritual cannibalism in the church. Galatians 5.15 says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We're walking around here in our hypocrisy with logs in our eyes, taking our scalpel, trying to get other people's specks out of their eyes, and tearing each other apart. And it happens all the time in the church. So we are to practice what James, the brother of our Lord, says in James 2.12. Speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you want to be shown mercy at the final judgment? Then you must, by nature of your new heart, be a person who shows mercy. And if we are merciful people, then we'll be in position to, protect, to practice the right type of judging. The moral judgments that leads to health in the church. For we, all call, we are called to correct one another. Verse 5 says, first, take the speck out of your own, and take the log out of your own eye. Then, then don't judge your brother. No. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Friends, we all need help. We've all got specks in our eyes. Or logs in our eyes. This means that we're only in position to help our brother deal with his or her sin once we have dealt with our sin. And in comparison to our brother's sin, our sin should seem enormous to us. Like a log. We must see the gravity, the utter hideousness, and darkness of our own sin. We must see how it has, it has inhibited our spiritual vision. We must see the pain that it has caused us, others, and the Lord. And only then, will we, when we see our sin, will we repent of our sin. And then we'll be in position to deal with others' sins. Only then will we be gracious and authentic. There's nothing worse than someone coming up with no tact, no grace whatsoever, pointing out sin in your life. Or someone coming out and 
pointing out sin in your life and, and they're not authentic. They don't really care about you. They just, like, they just want you to know that they, they know more about what's right than you do. No authenticity there. But there will be authenticity if we truly examine ourselves and repent of our own sin. Only then we'll be humbled and thus correct our brothers and sisters with gentleness. Galatians 6.1. You guys know this text. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should not judge. Right? No. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Don't you see the danger of deceiving ourselves and thinking we're more than we are? That's what keeps us from truly, gently helping each other out in the church like we should. So yes, we are to point out each other's sins. We are to confront one another's sins. We are to correct one another's sins. We are to admonish one another. We are at times to rebuke one another. We are to do it with directness, yet discretion. We are to do it with boldness, yet humility. And we are to do it with seriousness, yet with gentleness. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Jesus follows up his instructions here, his instructions later that we'll read in Matthew 18, with a command for us to forgive our brothers when they sin against us. So we are to judge, but we are to do it with a forgiving heart. So we see the church discipline that Paul calls for in 1 Corinthians 5 that I mentioned earlier. We see that followed later on in 2 Corinthians 2 with a call for the church to forgive and comfort the repentant man and reaffirm their love for him. And that's the proper balance. Moral judgments have to be made. We have to stand on. We have to be guided by God's moral law. We must never become sinfully judgmental, however. In order to have this proper judgment of the, in the church, we have to practice what the Scriptures tell us to practice. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We must act according to Romans 10, I mean Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So through careful self-examination, recognition of our own sin, and repentance from our own sin, our heart is softened, and so are our words, and our motives are turned in the right direction. As we desire the glory of God, we desire the good of our brothers, we desire the church to be healthy, and we deal with sin in the proper way. Then we'll be ready to exercise proper moral judgment in the church. And we must see that moral judgments must happen in the church and even must happen in our world. And the last point is simply this. We must see the necessity of good moral judgment. So first of all, we must see there's a difference. We must see the danger of judgmentalism. We must see the remedy of judgmentalism. And now we need to see the necessity of good moral judgment. So real quickly here to close on this. We come to the last verse. It says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, at first glance, this is a seemingly out-of-place statement by Jesus. What on earth do pigs and dogs and pearls and that kind of stuff have to do with judging? Well, first, the obvious. As we said earlier, Jesus is calling on us to make moral judgments here, to practice discernment. There are dogs and there are pigs Jesus is not talking about literal dogs and pigs, but he's talking about people. Dogs and pigs were the most despised animals, the most holy, unclean animals in, in Jesus' day. And Jesus says that some people in the world are dogs and pigs. Matter of fact, we all were dogs and pigs before being saved. But Jesus is specifically here referring to people who continually reject God's word and thus profane the things of God. These are people who call evil good and good evil. Jesus is commanding his children in today's text to be careful not to give God's holy and valuable things to those who trample them underfoot. We have no need to continue to give God's good gifts, including the gospel message, to those who openly mock it or profane it. Now we can. 
And we should continue to share the gospel whenever we can. But if there's a specific person that continues to spit in the face of the gospel, you do not have to continue to take the gospel to them. We are to discern such people, and this requires moral judgment. But I think it's even more directly to the related, related to the issue of judgment than we may first realize. Let us remember that the relationships Jesus is specifically dealing with here in this text are between brothers, Christians. And Jesus has made the point that we are, we are to deal with the sins of our brothers, but it's to be done in love and not judgmentalism. So now, if you try to point out the sin of an unbeliever in the same way you point out the sin of a brother, you're going to be called a fool. Even if you try to do it in a non-judgmental way, you will be maligned for they cannot hear the truth. I can go to a brother, Brother Anthony here, and say, Anthony, I see the sin in your life and we can deal with it because we're brothers. But if I go to an unbeliever and say the exact same thing, he'll call me a fool and he'll reject me. It's like taking pearls to pigs. It's foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And since these things can only be spiritually discerned, if we try to judge the world in the same way we're called to judge in the church, we'll discover that the world will turn around and attack us. The image here is of pigs that you're giving them food, and when they realize you're not throwing corn kernels at them, and instead they've been given indigestible pearls, they turn and they tear you apart. You see, pigs are incapable of seeing or appreciating the value of pearls. They prefer garbage. Unregenerate people prefer garbage. And so we have to be careful. Even when we're trying to point out sin to people in the world. They can't receive it. So we stand on the word. Unapologetically, unashamedly. But our job is not to judge the world. 1 Corinthians 5 makes this point. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9. This is Paul as he's telling them to judge a sexually immoral person in the church. He said, I wrote my letter to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with people who bear the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let me just put it in real practical here. You know, Peter goes out and preaches the gospel in in Athens, and, um, and many, not most, maybe 95% of the people that he preaches to are unbelievers. And he preaches and teaches the word, and, and sometimes some of those people do malign and, and um, certainly um, make fun of Peter and the other preachers that are out there. But you know what? Peter just preaches the word to these people and, let, and lets them react as, they, you know, as the Lord moves, whether the Spirit moves on them or not. But you know the people I think Peter is willing to confront more, and I think rightfully so, are those who come up to him and claim to be a Christian. Who claim to be a Christian and then have an issue with what he's preaching or teaching. If you claim to be a brother, well, all right, then let's have at it. Let's talk about these things, because if you're really a brother, then now my responsibility with you has changed. If you're not a brother, I'll preach the gospel to you. If you want to spit at me, fine, go your way. But if you say you're a brother and you, you say what I'm preaching to you is wrong or whatever, then let's have it out. Because the relationships in the church should be different than relationships outside the church. And so that's what Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians 5. So we must practice good moral judgment. We do not stand in condemnation of the world around us, but we do stand on the word of God. We do practice good moral judgment. And in the church, we do judge one another out of a spirit of genuine humility and love for one another. So just let's conclude. We're going to conclude with the Lord's Supper this morning. This is how we're going to conclude the service. We're going to have our Lord's Supper. So believer... As we come to the table this morning, let us practice self-awareness and self-examination. You are told in that same book of 1 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians was a messed up church, you are told, commanded to examine yourself before you come to this table. And you want to deal with judgmentalism in your life? It calls for serious self-examination and serious self-awareness of our own sinfulness. Are we aware of the depths of our own sin, Christians? 
Are we continually examining ourselves to deal with its lingering effects? Are we repenting of our sin? Paul tells us to do this before we come to this table. If you're an unbeliever, I ask you not to come to this table because you don't believe what this table represents this morning. I do not stand in judgment over you. I'm not a judge. But I'm going to stand, I'm not going to stand here and give you a trophy and say, yo, you're just fine. You're good. Just live however you want to live. I'm not going to do that. I am going to stand on this book right here. God does judge, and without Christ you are under condemnation. I say that not on my own authority, but on the authority of this book, which says that all men are born in rebellion against God. All men are born hating the truth. Such were all of us in here until we were born again. Only then were our spiritual eyes opened. Only then did we see our sins. So my prayer for you this morning, unbeliever, is as the Christians come up and participate in the Lord's Supper, my prayer for you this morning is that the righteous judge of the universe will use this illustration it's just what it is. It's, a, it's more than an illustration, but it's at least an illustration of what Christ did for us. That God, the righteous judge of the universe, will use that to open your eyes so you will see your sin. And if he does, you will turn from your sin. You will repent this morning. So I beg you to turn from your sin, turn to Christ. He was condemned so that sinners might live. And that's what this table is a picture of. So before we partake of it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come to participate in the Lord's Supper, this ordinance that you gave us to observe in the church, we do not do it lightly. We know what the Word says, that there's even physical ramifications for partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That is very frightening. I don't even know what all that means, Father. All I know is you call us to examine ourselves before we come to the table. So, Lord, that's my prayer for all of us in here this morning, that we confess our sin to you, whatever it might be this morning. That you would give us the ability to detect the log in our eye this morning. God, help me to see the log in my eye. Help all of us to see the logs in our eyes and help us to deal with them by repenting of those logs. And then as we come and we joyfully participate and we're humbled by what this this juice and this bread represents and our hearts are softened by it, then we'll be in position to carefully and gently go to our brother or our sister and help them with the speck that's in their eye. So God, make us the people you want us to be this morning. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.